We are nearing the end of our journey with Moses and Jesus this fall. We have been following the people of Israel from Egypt. Moses leads them out of bondage and to the Red Sea and across the sea and to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up and receives the Ten Commandments. The people wait impatiently. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Last uh, a couple of weeks ago, we stood on Mount Nebo looking over into the Promised Land. Moses doesn't get to go. He's buried there in Moab. And then Aaron dies. And then Joshua, last week, leads the people down and across the Jordan into the Promised Land. And today we find ourselves with the people, a new day in the Promised Land. It's a new day, and Joshua puts before them a choice they have to make in this new place on this new day. Our text is Joshua 24. The part of this text you will know is one of those that uh, ends up on a lot of bumper stickers, on those cute little stickers that you stick on your uh, refrigerator. You know the text. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As I looked at the text, I realized there's a lot more there. This is a difficult text. There's a lot more to deal with. And I ended up not focusing on that particular line. But let me read the whole text to you. Set this up. From Joshua chapter 24. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates. And served other gods, lowercase g, other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond that river and led him through the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Now, therefore, now that we're on this side of the Jordan in this promised land, now, therefore, revere the Lord and serve God in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight. God protected us all along the way that we went and among all the peoples through, with, through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land, Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for this is our God. But Joshua said to the people, now here's the part, but Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve this Lord, for the Lord is a holy God, a jealous God. God will not forgive your transgression of your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then God will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve. God we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with them that day and made statutes and ordinances for them at Shechem. You have heard the ancient story. Well, this is interesting. I don't have the first page of my sermon. Do you have 
Let me see what I can do. This has never happened before. We had a, a crazy um, chaotic moment before worship started. We were all in the copy room making sure we had copies of the PowerPoint since we don't have um, that order of service. And uh, somewhere, page one has gotten mixed up. Here's how I began the sermon. By saying, thanks to our ancestors in faith, the pilgrims, we have a Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. I didn't know this history, but I had looked it up this week. Apparently, in that day, in the 17th century, um, many people in tri under trial um, were faced with what was called the oath um, of something it's on that page. They were meant to confess the oath of something. And if they did not confess, if they were unwilling to confess, it was evidence that they were guilty. But when they confessed the oath, then they faced a dilemma. They called it the cruel trilemma, page two of my sermon. Because the accused became trapped between three convictions. The oath was considered a religious oath, and breaking a religious oath was a mortal sin. You might confine yourself to hell for breaking a religious oath. Number two, refusing to answer any question in court was considered contempt of court, and you might find yourself thrown in prison or worse. And number three, answering the questions, which were often incriminating, led the accused to convict himself or herself. Making the cruel trilemma even more cruel was the torture that was often used to coerce cooperation. Relying on the strength of religious conviction, the pilgrims began refusing to take the oath. Now you remember in that day, many people were put on trial for all sorts of crazy things like witchcraft and stuff like that. We're not talking about pilgrims being murderers, but when they were put on trial, they would refuse to take this oath. Around 1630, a man named John Lilburn was tried under those unfair circumstances, and the outcry against his abuse led the pilgrims to take their convictions and seek justice in the new world. In that new world, after Thomas Jefferson drafted the Declaration of Independence, and then James Madison penned one of history's greatest documents, which became the U.S. Constitution, then 10 amendments to that Constitution were ratified in 1791. The Fifth Amendment to that Bill of Rights says in part, no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. The next time you feel the need to plead the Fifth, you can thank the pilgrims. Now today's text of Scripture is a difficult one, because I am afraid that it really does sound like an Old Testament, an outdated truth to our ears. As I was reading, I was watching some of your eyes, some of those things about that kind of God. Judaism was the world's first monotheistic religion, but a religion in one God, a belief in one God was not easy to come by. The entire ancient Middle East lived within a worldview of polytheism. Many gods. Every nation had its own god or gods. And those deities were geographical. They were territorial. They often acted in ways that we would see as spiteful, insecure, just downright mean. But as they enter a new land, Joshua sets a new, clear choice before the people. Choose either those gods, the gods of your ancestors, or the Lord, the one God. But you see, apparently, after you have spent so many years fearfully cowering in servitude to some petty God, or gloating, my God's bigger than your God, Yahweh just sounds like another one of those gods, just as tribal as the gods beyond the river. The vision of monotheism was bold and brave and beautiful. And a complete 
completely different vision of the divine. As we now understand it, rather than pettiness, there is divine generosity. Above judgment, there is godly grace. Beyond strength, there is the more excellent way of love. Rather than, abscond, uh, rather than absconding in some distant heaven, the one God descends, Christians say, finally being revealed in human flesh, celebrating temporal joys, our earthly pains, feeling those. But that kind of revelation does not come like a bolt of lightning. Joshua set the choice before his people, the gods of the river, or Yahweh. It seems to me we're still trying to understand. The God Joshua describes for his people is not a God I know. The God who will not forgive your sins is not the deity before whom I bow in our moment of silent confession each Sunday in this place. The deity who does you good and then turns in a moment of jealous anger to do you harm is not the God I trust with my life or our future. Any God who will consume you for an infidelity based on human finitude has no resemblance to the God of self-sacrificial love that we see in Jesus. So I think we just have to admit that this story conveys an ancient worldview. And even though it is the view of our religious ancestors, their understanding of the whole world was different. Their understanding of God was different than ours. Now there are those who want to take everything found between Genesis and Revelation as concretely as possible. The God Joshua sets before his people is a supernatural being who dabbles in the affairs of humans and nations, literally pulling the strings of culture, manipulating the forces of politics, siding with kings, giving victory to armies, literally taking land from one people and deeding it to another people. Those are the stories as we read them literally. But these ancient people, they saw everything differently than we do. And for generations, they had known polytheism. That's all they had known, the battle of the gods. It's understandable if the God Joshua put before them then just sounded like another one of the gods. Yahweh is our God. If that worldview still frames your understanding of who God is, as it does for many people. If that kind of worldview still frames your understanding of what it means for people and nations to be godly, it is also no surprise that some people today will still play the card of the territorial God, the tribal Lord who can still do our bidding, picking our kings, fighting our wars. Far too many people are still happy to claim that God is on our side, ordaining and appointing their leader, no matter how immoral or cruel that leader may be. This is dangerous theology, and it is still with us today. Now, I understand that this is difficult stuff. The text is difficult. What do we do with an old text like this? I understand this difficult. But there is truth to be found even from a text that seems so foreign to us. A God who is so different from what we have known. Because the bottom line for Joshua, as he instructs his people, is that the God in whom they will put their trust, the size and the shape, the definition and the distinction, the character of the divine, will be proven by their own witness. Joshua realizes how difficult this will be. What a challenge for the people to let their own lives speak for God. So he gives them an out. Joshua basically says to them, plead the fifth. You don't have to testify against yourself. You don't have to choose this God. You don't want to do this because you are frail, failed, fallen. You can't justify yourself before this terrifying God. 
plead the fifth. Remarkably, these ancient people, brand new to a God named Yahweh, make one of the most remarkable affirmations in Scripture. No, they say, put us on trial. We will stand. We will testify against ourselves. Let our lives be our witness. We are witnesses. Remarkable, isn't it? If I believed about God what they believed, that God was a terrifying deity, lifted high with jealous wrath, ready to consume me for being unfaithful, I think I might believe the fifth. Even with what I believe about God, that God is unconditional love, mercy within mercy within mercy, grace beyond goodness, do I really want to put my life on the line? Or might my own witness be self-incriminating? Can I plead the fifth? One lesson from this text and a connection we have with an ancient people and an ancient view of God is that the life of faith has no fifth amendment. Our witness is all we have. And that witness speaks boldly and clearly about how we view God. The question for today's Christians is not choose this day, which God will you choose? The question is, what kind of God will people know from the witness you bear? Will God be harsh, judgmental, transactional, unforgiving, randomly cruel? Or will God be grace and justice, the power of love, not the love of power? In the life of faith, you cannot plead. Christians believe that Jesus died to show us what God is really like. Will the world know that kind of love from your witness? Maybe so. Amen. I've checked about ten times. I have all my pages. It's just two. Keep your lamps trimmed and burning. Keep your lamps trimmed and burning. Keep your lamps trimmed and burning. The time is drawing nigh. Waiting. 
while the other five are very ill-prepared. Jesus is giving instructions here to his disciples about how they should live and act after he has departed from this earth while they wait for his return. Keep your lamps trimmed and burning. Don't grow weary. Liberation is coming. This is not an easy parable, though, and it's not pretty. And frankly, there are moments in this parable that don't sound very Jesus-y at all. Russ kept claiming he had the difficult passage. I claim that I win today. I've got the most difficult passage of the day. We can often push a parable to try to say too much and then miss the nugget of truth located in the center of the teaching story. This parable may end up being less about the judgment of who the end, who this parable may be less about the judgment surrounding the who is in and who is out that fascinates and confounds us, and more about the present moment. How do we live in this present moment, the waiting moment? How do we live in the meantime? From Matthew's Gospel, hear this difficult story. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil to go with them, ill-prepared. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, Look! Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there'll not be enough for you and for us. You better go out to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. This is so not the way the story is supposed to go, in my opinion, but I did not write it. While they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Ugh. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now I ask you, who has the more difficult text today? Me. And there's so many things that I would like to talk with you about in this parable that's full of things to talk about. Lessons to be learned in the midst of the struggle of the not Jesus-y part. What do we do with all of that? But I only have time to say one thing. So here's the one thing I'll say about the parable. This parable calls Jesus' disciples to a state of constant alertness. A perpetual openness to God's dramatic future. I lifted that line from a commentary by Greg Carey. This parable calls us to a perpetual openness to God's dramatic future. Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples about how they should live after he has departed from this earth. Wait faithfully. Together, he says. Matt Skinner asks the question, what makes this parable about anything other than what it looks like on its own? A description of a mean and demanding Jesus. He answers his own question with, we need the rest of Matthew's gospel to answer that question. For the rest of Matthew's gospel conveys an understanding of what it looks like to live in readiness. Such a life is marked by active waiting as we expect God to make all things new and as God expects us to make all things new on God's behalf. So the question for us today from these bridesmaids, are we ready for what may happen quickly 
And are we ready for what might be delayed? And I'm not talking about the return of Jesus. I'm asking, are we living in a place of readiness for whatever is needed in whatever moment we find ourselves? How we live in this meantime says a lot about our faith and our calling. How you live in this meantime will show the world what you believe. How we live in this meantime is a reflection of our faith. Faithful readiness is what this parable calls us to. Keeping our lamps trimmed and burning, ready to announce liberation as it comes. That's how we're to live. Faithful readiness must be active readiness. It means saying that even though the wedding banquet hasn't begun yet, together we're going to act like it has. Faithful readiness looks like bold solidarity, especially with the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, the outcast, the fringe, the different, the forgotten. Faithful readiness longs for freedom for all of God's people. Faithful readiness means that we will serve as advocates that consider human dignity a priority in how we treat one another. Faithful readiness refuses to accept closed doors, but rather works for change. Change within ourselves and change within our system. Change that moves us toward inclusion and acceptance and love. Faithful readiness will take work and action, grounded in the love of God and the way of Jesus. Are you ready for this present moment? For the kingdom of God is among us and within us, so let us live faithfully into this meaning.